Hey, welcome to Socialism for All. This file is being recorded for the April 2022 edition of Socialism for All, and it's an audiobook and discussion of The War in China by Lenin from 1900. If you like this video, please click like and subscribe, and we don't run ads on this channel, so please consider supporting on Patreon at patreon.com slash socialismforall. There's a link to Patreon in the video description. So this work is from 1900, December specifically, published in Iskra, The Spark, number one. That was the newspaper that Lenin helped to found. And this is pretty early in Lenin's catalog of works. December 1900, at this point, we're still five years out from the first Russian Revolution, which exacted some reforms from the Tsar, but at this point, those were still five years off. And of course, even further off, were the February Revolution of 1917, when the Tsar was deposed, and then the October Revolution of 1917, when the bourgeois provisional government was deposed and the Bolsheviks led the revolution. Okay, so what was going on in 1900, specifically with regard to the war in China? So, basically, the Chinese monarchy was on its way out. The Qing Dynasty would fall 11 years after this in 1911, so basically what we would expect to see here are what happened in its last couple of decades of instability and slipping support. That's exactly what we see. So China in 1894 into 1895, a little bit under a year, had what we know today as the first Sino-Japanese War. Basically China and Japan were fighting with each other over who had influence in Korea which is geographically between China and Japan, basically to China's northeast. So as we know, Japan would go on to be a major imperial power. China would not. And basically, in the course of this conflict, China demonstrated that it was not really able to modernize its military very well, and basically they lost the conflict. So Tsarist Russia, to China's northwest, was looking at all this and saying, hmm, maybe there's an opportunity here. And so basically, at this time, between 1895 and 1900, Russia starts to compete with Japan for influence and domination of generally this region, the neighborhood of northern China. And while the Chinese government had, you know, tried to step up and be a major power, it was clear that it was going to be second rate compared to the Tsarist Empire and to Japan. So the Chinese government, again, at that time, the Qing dynasty, the final Chinese monarchy, was making concessions to the Russian imperialists and to the Japanese imperialists. And not surprisingly, there was a lot of resentment among local Chinese, you know, the people actually lived in China and were basically having their stuff given away to the imperialists by the dying Chinese monarchy. An example of one of these rebellions is what's known today as the Boxer Rebellion, so-called because a lot of the participants in the rebellion were practitioners of martial arts. In China, martial arts were generally passed down through lineages, and there were kind of some secret societies attached to, like, passing down the secrets of, you know, these martial arts or those particular tricks for immortality and power, yada yada. Anyway, because they were secret societies, kind of like Freemasonry in Europe, they were particularly good for while keeping secrets and being able to coordinate, you know, secret activities. So they launched, for example, the Boxer Rebellion, and this is roughly the 1900 period that we're talking about. So with that said, 
Again, this text was published in Iskra, issue number one, December 1900, published here according to the Iskra text. The source is Lenin Collected Works, Progress Publishers, 1964, Moscow, Volume 4. HTML transcription and markup by R. Cymbala and D. Walters. It's in the public domain at the Lenin Internet Archive, which is part of the Marxists Internet Archive, Marxists.org. Thanks, as usual, to MIA for hosting this and thousands of other free Marxist texts. Please go check them out. Support them. Volunteer for them if you can. So let's get into the text. Russia is bringing her war with China to a close. A number of military districts have been mobilized. Hundreds of millions of rubles have been spent. Tens of thousands of troops have been dispatched to China. A number of battles have been fought, and a number of victories won. True, not so much over regular enemy troops as over Chinese insurgents, and particularly over the unarmed Chinese populace who were drowned or killed, with no holding back from the slaughter of women and children, not to speak of the looting of palaces, homes, and shops. The Russian government, together with the press that kowtows to it, is celebrating a victory and rejoicing over the fresh exploits of the gallant soldiery, rejoicing at the victory of European culture over Chinese barbarism, and over the fresh successes of Russia's, quote, civilizing mission in the Far East. But the voices of the class-conscious workers, of the advanced representatives of the many millions of the working people, are not heard amid this rejoicing. And yet, it is the working people who bear the brunt of the victorious new campaigns, it is working people who are sent to the other end of the world, from whom increased taxes are extorted to cover the millions expended. Let us therefore see. What attitude should the socialists adopt towards this war? In whose interests is it being fought? What is the real nature of the policy now being pursued by the Russian government? Our government asserts, first of all, that it is not waging war against China, that it is merely suppressing rebellion, pacifying rebels that it is helping the lawful government of China to re-establish law and order. True, war has not been declared, but this does not change the situation a bit, because war is being waged nonetheless. What made the Chinese attack Europeans? What caused the rebellion which the British, French, Germans, Russian, Japanese, etc. are so zealously crushing? Quote, the hostility of the yellow race towards the white race. Quote, the Chinese hatred for European culture and civilization, answer the supporters of the war. Yes, it's true that the Chinese hate the Europeans, but which Europeans do they hate, and why? The Chinese do not hate the European peoples. They have never had any quarrel with them. They hate the European capitalists and the European governments obedient to them. How can the Chinese not hate those who have come to China solely for the sake of gain, who have utilized their vaunted civilization solely for the purpose of deception, plunder, and violence, who have waged wars against China in order to win the right to trade in opium with which to drug the people, the war of England and France with China in 1856, and who hypocritically carried their policy of plunder under the guise of spreading Christianity. The bourgeois governments of Europe have long been conducting this policy of plunder with respect to China, and now they have been joined by the autocratic Russian government. This policy of plunder is usually called a colonial policy. Every country in which capitalist industry develops rapidly has very soon to seek colonies, i.e. countries in which industry is weakly developed, in which a more or less patriarchal way of life still prevails, and which can serve as a market for manufactured goods and a source of high profits. For the sake of the profit of a handful of capitalists, 
the bourgeois governments have waged endless wars, have sent regiments to die in unhealthy tropical countries, have squandered millions of money extracted from the people, and have driven the peoples in the colonies to desperate revolts or to death from starvation. We need only recall the rebellion of the native peoples against the British in India, and the famine that prevailed there, or think of the war that the English are now waging against the Boers. There's a footnote there. The reference about the British in India is to the uprising for national liberation that began in India in 1857. The insurrection was suppressed by British troops in 1859. Back to the text. And now, the European capitalists have placed their rapacious paws upon China, and almost the first to do so was the Russian government, which now so loudly proclaims its, quote, disinterestedness. It, quote, disinterestedly took Port Arthur away from China and began to build a railway to Manchuria under the protection of Russian troops. One after another, the European governments began feverishly to loot, or as they put it, to, quote, rent Chinese territory, giving good grounds for the talk of the partition of China. If we are to call things by their right names, we must say that the European governments, the Russian government among the very first, have already started to partition China. However, they have not begun this partitioning openly, but stealthily, like thieves. They began to rob China as ghouls rob corpses, and when this seeming corpse attempted to resist, they flung themselves upon it like savage beasts, burning down whole villages, shooting, bayonetting, and drowning in the Amur River, unarmed inhabitants, their wives, and their children. And all these Christian exploits are accompanied by howls against the Chinese barbarians, who dared to raise their hands against the civilized Europeans. The occupation of New Chuang and the moving of Russian troops into Manchuria are temporary measures, declares the autocratic Russian government in its circular note of August 12, 1900, addressed to the powers. These measures, quote, are called forth exclusively by the necessity to repel the aggressive operations of Chinese rebels, unquote. They, quote, cannot in the least be regarded as evidence of any selfish plans which are totally alien to the policy of the imperial government, unquote. Comment, I feel like when you're ending it with the imperial government, the emphatic denial of any selfishness may fall a little bit flat. Continuing. Poor imperial government, so Christianly unselfish, and yet so unjustly maligned. Several years ago, it unselfishly seized Port Arthur, and now it is unselfishly seizing Manchuria. It has unselfishly flooded the frontier provinces of China with hordes of contractors, engineers, and officers, who, by their conduct, have roused to indignation even the Chinese, known for their docility. The Chinese workers employed in the construction of the Chinese railway had to exist on a wage of 10 kopecks a day. Is this not unselfish on Russia's part? How is our government's senseless policy in China to be explained? Who benefits by it? The benefit goes to a handful of capitalist magnates who carry on trade with China, to a handful of factory owners who manufacture goods for the Asian market, to a handful of contractors who are now piling up huge profits on urgent war orders, Factories producing war equipment, supplies for the troops, etc., are now operating at full capacity and are engaging hundreds of new workers. This policy is of benefit to a handful of nobles who occupy high posts in the civil and military services. They need adventurous policies, for these provide them with opportunities for promotion, for making a career, and gaining fame by their exploits. 
in the interests of this handful of capitalists and bureaucratic scoundrels, our government unhesitatingly sacrifices the interests of the entire people. And in this case, as always, the autocratic czarist government has proved itself to be a government of irresponsible bureaucrats servilely cringing before the capitalist magnates and nobles. What benefits do the Russian working class and the laboring people generally obtain from the conquests in China? Thousands of ruined families whose breadwinners have been sent to the war, an enormous increase in the national debt and the national expenditure, mounting taxation, greater power for the capitalists, the exploiters of the workers, worse conditions for the workers, still greater mortality among the peasantry, famine in Siberia. This is what the Chinese war promises and is already bringing. The entire Russian press, all the newspapers and periodicals, are kept in a state of bondage. They dare not print anything without permission of the government officials. This is the reason for the lack of precise information as to what the Chinese war is costing the people. But there's no doubt that it requires the expenditure of many hundreds of millions of rubles. It has come to our knowledge that the government, by an unpublished decree, handed out the tidy sum of 150 million rubles for the purpose of waging the war. In addition to this, current expenditures on the war absorb 1 million rubles every three or four days, and these terrific sums are being squandered by a government which, haggling over every kopeck, has steadily cut down grants to the famine-stricken peasantry, which can find no money for the people's education, which, like any kulak, sweats the workers in the government factories, sweats the lower employees in the post offices, etc. Minister of Finance Vita declared that on January 1st, 1900, there were 250 million rubles available in the treasury. Now, this money is gone. It has been spent on the war. The government is seeking loans, is increasing taxation, is refusing necessary expenditures because of the lack of money, and is putting a stop to the building of railways. The czarist government is threatened with bankruptcy, and yet it is plunging into a policy of conquest, a policy which not only demands the expenditure of enormous sums of money, but threatens to plunge us into still more dangerous wars. The European states that have flung themselves upon Russia are already beginning to quarrel over the division of the booty, and no one can say how this quarrel will end. But the policy of the czarist government in China is not only a mockery of the interests of the people, its aim is to corrupt the political consciousness of the masses. Governments that maintain themselves in power only by means of the bayonet, that have constantly to restrain or suppress the indignation of the people, have long realized the truism that popular discontent can never be removed and that it is necessary to divert the discontent from the government to some other object. For example, hostility is being stirred up against the Jews. The gutter press carries on Jew-baiting campaigns as if the Jewish workers do not suffer in exactly the same way as the Russian workers from the oppression of capital and the police government. At the present time, the press is conducting a campaign against the Chinese. It is howling about the savage yellow race and its hostility towards civilization, about Russia's tasks of enlightenment, about the enthusiasm with which the Russian soldiers go into battle, etc., etc., Journalists who crawl on their bellies before the government and the money bags are straining every nerve to rouse the hatred of the people against China. But the Chinese people have at no time, and in no way, oppressed the Russian people. The Chinese people suffer from the same evils as those from which the Russian people suffer. They suffer from an Asiatic government that squeezes taxes from the starving peasantry and that suppresses every aspiration towards liberty by military force. They suffer from the oppression of capital, 
which has penetrated into the Middle Kingdom. The Russian working class is beginning to move out of the state of political oppression and ignorance, in which the masses of the people are still submerged. Hence, the duty of all class-conscious workers is to rise with all their might against those who are stirring up national hatred and diverting the attention of the working people from their real enemies. The policy of the Tsarist government in China is a criminal policy, which is impoverishing, corrupting, and oppressing the people more than ever. The Tsarist government not only keeps our people in slavery, but sends them to pacify other peoples who rebel against their slavery, as was the case in 1849 when Russian troops suppressed the revolution in Hungary. It not only helps the Russian capitalists to exploit the Russian workers, whose hands it ties to hold them back from combining and defending themselves, but it also sends soldiers to plunder other peoples in the interests of a handful of rich men and nobles. There is only one way in which the new burden the war is thrusting upon the working people can be removed, and that is the convening of an assembly of representatives of the people, which would put an end to the autocracy of the government and compel it to have regard for interests other than those solely of a gang of courtiers. And that's the end of the audiobook. So this one's going in a playlist on the channel called Marxism and the National Question and War. There are already a number of texts in that playlist. I'm going to be expanding it fairly dramatically in the next month or two. It seems like with recent events, there is a lot of education that needs to take place on this issue, and I'd like to put out as many resources as possible. I think that the thing that stands out the most to me is this was written in 1900, basically 121 years ago, but how little have the dynamics of capitalism changed in that time? Of course, technology has advanced, and more and more people have been brought into the proletariat, the dispossessed working class that does not own capital. That has changed, and when I say technology, I mean everything. Globalization, communication, transportation technology. It's a much more interconnected world. And indeed, just as the global proletariat has grown and developed due to the demands of capital, so has capital become increasingly international, consolidated, etc. But these basic operations of war and plunder and conquest, the capitalist media lying to the people, trying to incite divisions between people along ethnic or national or whatever lines they can, so that this capitalist can try to gain an advantage over the capitalists over there, or against the relatively underdeveloped country over there. It's all the same, and this is why we study it and apply it in our lives and political struggles today because the liberation of the working class is an ongoing project as we do this in 2022. Capitalism still needs to be ended. Capitalism still needs to be abolished. Socialism still needs to be built across the whole world. And we need to arm ourselves with as much education as we can as we go out to organize for actually engaging in those fights. I'm going to leave it here. What do you think? Leave a question or comment below. We'll continue the discussion in the comment section as always. Otherwise, thanks for listening. And thanks to the current patrons whose names are on the screen. Their financial support has allowed me to spend a lot more time on this channel and has allowed me to produce more content than I would have been able to do without their support. So I thank them. We don't run ads on this channel, as I mentioned in the beginning. So the Patreon is all the financial support that we get. Do consider signing up for $2 a month or more, whatever you see fit. It's much appreciated. Beyond that, other ways to support the channel include engagement, like liking, sharing, subscribing, and leaving a comment, even if it's just thanks or good video. Once the content has been made, 
it needs to be boosted in that way, and that helps other working people who are looking for answers to questions about what's going on in the world, how to gain power, how to fight back against oppression and exploitation. It helps this content to be more easily stumbled across by those people. So we really appreciate everybody who has become a subscriber and who regularly engages with the channel in those ways. So for now, thanks again, and we will catch you in the next video.